Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I'm thrilled to be back on the conversation couch, the convo couch I should say, on rights for women to do one of my all-time favourite things and interview a fellow author. Today I'm chatting with Gina Perry. Factual writer by day, novelist by night. Love that description. Gina is an award-winning author, science historian, and former psychologist whose feature articles, columns, essays, and short stories have been published in newspapers and magazines, including The Age, The Australian Cosmos, and New Scientist. Gina is the author of two books of nonfiction, The Acclaimed Behind the Shock Machine and The Lost Boys. Her co-production of the ABC Radio National documentary Beyond the Shock Machine won the Silver World Medal for a history documentary in the 2009 New York Festival's Radio Awards. She was runner-up for the Bragg University of New South Wales Prize for Science Writing in 2013 and her work has been anthologised in Best Australian Science Writing. My Father the Whale is her first novel and it was shortlisted for the 2021 HarperCollins Banjo Prize. It's garnered quotes from some of Australia's favourite writers, including, including, I should say, Fable Parrot, Tony Birch and Laurie Steed. I myself described it as a heartwarming tale about yearning, belonging and finding oneself. Gina Perry, welcome. Oh, thank you. And thank you for those lovely words too about me and my achievements. It makes me feel very proud. <laughs> You've done a lot. Let's start at the beginning in a way. You describe yourself as a former psychologist. What was it that initially prompted you to pursue this career? I was doing a lot of vocational counselling in my psychological work and I was giving people advice about following their interests and their passions in terms of finding meaningful work and I started to reflect on whether or not I was in a job that I was happy with and would I prefer to be doing something else. And I started to think about what I'd always wanted to do rather than what I felt I should do, which I think often happens when you've been through a university course and perhaps not thought too deeply about whether or not the work you're training for might suit you. And I decided that I'd always loved to write and it would be something I wanted to explore. So I started there and then taking writing courses and I never looked back. Interesting. And so from that, or in part of that, you've written two works of non-fiction beyond The Shock Machine and The Lost Boys. Both of them dive deep into a famous psychological, social psychological experiments. And having not read either of them, they're both now on my TBR list, they sound fascinating. First of all, what made you want to sit down and write those particular books? Uh been very interested obviously as a student and as a professional in the whole area of psychology but 
I began to wonder what the behind-the-scenes story was with some of these famous experiments. And so both of those experiments were very well known, but we only had the scientist perspective. And I'd already heard that there was a lot of archival material available. I travelled back and forth from Australia to the US mainly, conducting archival research and finding people who took part. I think I've always been interested in the deeper stories behind well-known events and I think a lot gets left out of the official record and that's really what I wanted to do. Mm, Interesting. You've also written articles and essays and a Radio National documentary. I'm curious about the why here, as in... So insofar as whether you've always had this internal drive to to explore writing in all its formats or was it just you being driven to to gain deeper knowledge of a su- subject and wanting to share it what was what was pushing you in this direction towards non-fiction and the documentaries essays and articles etc when i first started writing studying writing i studied fiction as well as non-fiction and i absolutely loved both and i think All writing in some way is attempting to understand yourself or other people. Doing fiction and non-fiction, I felt like you could really dive deep into that. And in fictional worlds, you're creating the characters and understanding them. In non-fiction, you're researching them and using that as the basis. I think that's always been what's motivated me. But obviously, I did study fiction as well as non-fiction. And I wrote a lot of short stories initially, but... I found the process of publication so long and often tortuous with short stories and I'm quite an impatient person. You can get, if you've got a good pitch for an editor with a newspaper or magazine, you can get the go-ahead in 24 hours and have a story out in a week. And I love the immediacy of that. So I think that was the other appeal for me about non-fiction. And, of course, the more you do something, the better you get at it. So I tended to leave fiction behind for a long time while I pursued those projects. Of course, I used a lot of fiction techniques in non-fiction writing, so it, it's not like you can separate the two out completely. And what sort of techniques would you say analogous with both forms of writing? I think in writing good non-fiction, you need to be a good storyteller. You need to have an ear for dialogue. You have to... Find the telling detail that's going to reveal something to the reader about someone that you're interviewing. And you can use elements like setting and atmosphere to add a lot to a non-fiction story. So for me, there was always those elements were blended in non-fiction writing. Yeah. Interesting. So let's turn to My Father the Whales, the purpose of today's chat. And by the time this podcast comes out, the book would have been released on the 7th of June. I was curious, first of all, what did come first for you? Were you driven by premise or were you driven by character? Absolutely driven by character. And I wrote a short story and it involved these two characters so were they Ruby and Mitch, Mitch in the short story? Yeah. Yep. Ruby and Mitch and the two characters living out of a combi and there was just something that crackled between them from that first time I wrote about them where I really felt that they wouldn't let me go. 
And so I really was driven by character and the situation. So what would happen, for example, how would life unfold for a child who was living out of a combi, not stopping anywhere and travelling Australia and busking for a living? What would life be like and how would she navigate what all children have to navigate, which is that process of finding their own identity and seeing themselves as separate from their family? So let's start at the beginning. We've got nine-year-old Ruby, as you say, living in a combi with her dad, Mitch. Mum is gone. She's not part of the story at the beginning of it. The life they're living is nomadic, I suppose, at best you could describe yes. it. They do, you say they're busking, they also have a little circus act that's going on. In your mind as you're writing this, what are you seeing as the dynamic between fa father and daughter, between nine-year-old Ruby and her dad, Mitch? The dynamic I felt was the driving force, particularly in the first half of the book, is that Mitch is a man who really wants his child to be a mini version of himself, a child who will bob along in his wake, a child who won't interfere with the life that he has always wanted to lead and a child who will share his views about the fact that living this unconventional life is what he regards it as idyllic and he's always assuming that his daughter will feel the same and that it is right that she feels the same. So he's quite a kind of egotistical, self-absorbed person and he has very strong views on the life they lead and why it's superior to the conventional, what he sees as the conventional and limited suburban life that, that is an alternative for them in the city. And let's be clear for those who haven't read the book yet, this is the only life Ruby has ever had in her conscious memory. This is the life, isn't it? It's not like she has memories of a before time. The world as Mitch is unfolding it for her is the world, isn't it? That's right. And so there's, I hope there's a tension with the reader because the reader is seeing what the drawbacks of this life could be like. But for Ruby... It's all she's ever known and obviously there are points in the story, in the early part of the story, where she makes comparisons about how they live and other people live but not in a critical way. It's almost as if she notices things but she's not judgmental about her father at all in those early years. And in a way they can't, I suppose, from Ruby's Point of view and her limited life experience it's almost like she's a tourist on other people's lives at this point in time isn't it she's just viewing them as a lens as you would when you just go to visit someone you've never been before and you just go oh look at how the other half live kind of thing isn't it that's a lovely description actually yeah she is she's a tourist looking at what we would regard as normal life but from an outsider's perspective yeah. yeah, and one of the things I really enjoyed about your writing and probably no surprise given your former life is they're both really complex and fully realised characters. As a writer, did you spend time getting to know them before you, know, before you really developed the manuscript or was it a slow reveal for you in various subsequent drafts as you wrote through? Are you like one of these people who likes to 
So I write tons of backstory <laughs> and before I actually start committing to what the forward story will be in the novel, what was that process for you? Very intuitively and I really do just try and follow where the characters are leading me. But that's a very inefficient way of writing, I find, because you can end up with hundreds and hundreds of pages that you never end up using. So I only ever explore a backstory or flesh something out when I'm really stuck and I can't understand what might be happening between the two characters. So, for example, if I had difficulty with a scene between Mitch and Ruby, I'd try writing it from his point of view, even though that doesn't make its way into the book, to try and unlock what the knot was there that was making it difficult for me. But I do tend to write more intuitively, particularly with these two characters. There's something from really, as I said, from the first appearance on the page for me, was obvious that these two people wanted different things. It's just that it takes Ruby a long time to realise that. Mm, and I guess as a coming-of-age story, so it should because she mm -hmm. needs to come into her own person before or part of coming into her own person is to go through the sort of discarding of some ideas, the taking on of other ideas. So I found that really quite enriching in the novel as well. One of the other things, the stories obviously, as you've touched on, centre around tension and conflict, and of which there's plenty in My Father the Whale. What were you seeking to explore with the way Ruby and Mitch interact with the outside world and their dependency on each other? Because I found that very alive on the page as well. As, I, as much as there was the, the, the pulling away moments, there was also, they were very codependent as well, weren't they? Yes, they live in a bubble, really. That's the way I was thinking of it. They live both in a combi, but they also live in a, very self-contained world and Mitch emphasises that to her but all they need is each other all they want is in that that combi van and in a way it's that gives the story I think a sense of almost claustrophobia as well that there are both good parts to it but there are also the negative parts as well because Ruby doesn't have any opportunity obviously to break out and compare herself in any real way with other people. Of course, that happens up until the point when the combi breaks down in, in Whaler's Bay and Ruby and Mitch's nomadic lifestyle is forced to a stop, albeit with the intention of that being temporary. And here the narrative changes because here Ruby goes to school, which is in itself a strange experience for her, but she also meets Fiona. And how does Fiona start to change the way Ruby sees the world and her father? I think, oh, that's such a great question. I haven't thought about that before. But I guess what happens for Ruby when they are stranded in Whaler's Bay and she has to go to school, she's looking to other people at school to see how you behave and what the rules are. And originally Fiona is not the bad girl in the class, but she's certainly always late. She's regarded as a bit of a pest by the teacher. And Ruby, of course, wants the teacher's approval. She wants to, to not be noticed, really. Not to, she wants to fit in. That's her main motivation at that point. 
So I think Fiona gives her a little bit of freedom there to see that you don't actually have to comply. I think she allows Ruby to be playful in a way that Ruby perhaps hasn't before. And obviously, too, she gives her a window into her own family life, which yes. is intriguing for Ruby. Exactly. So meeting Fiona and her family has a huge impact on Ruby's sense of loss of her mother and it begins to change the way she sees her father and the life that they've been living. This is, I was reflecting on this thinking, it's quite tricky, delicate territory to navigate because it started raising questions in my mind as the reader. Is the loss of the mother figure a good thing for Ruby or is it a tragedy? Because we don't know at this point in time why the mother figure is absent. Is it the fact that Mitch refuses to talk about her mother and is that born out of guilt or grief? I was curious what you were trying to achieve at this point in the story as well along those lines. I think the, the right at the beginning of the book there is the map that Ruby keeps where she draws all their journey across Australia on the map. And the only part of the map of Australia that they never go to is Victoria or Melbourne. So there's a sense there, I hope, that we get early on that Mitch is avoiding or escaping something that is in Melbourne and Victoria. He also refers to the death of Azaria Chamberlain and Lindy Chamberlain's failure to win her High Court appeal. So he talks about mothers early on in the book and I think Ruby's aware that her mother has died and I think she's more aware that Mitch's refusal to talk about her mother is painful for him. I think she senses that because... She's very careful. She wants to know more about her mother, but he resists. And I think she's very attuned to her dad's feelings. And when she meets the Stanleys, I think it opens up something for her that she didn't know she'd been missing. And that is what a normal family looks like, but also what it looks like when there are two parents and particularly what it's like for a child to have a mother or a mother figure in her life. So Fiona opens that up to her. But as you say, it is tricky because Ruby's not critical of her father. Um, and yet she should be. Like I'm listening to you and I'm thinking he's so selfish that he doesn't think about Ruby's feelings at all or her right to know her own backstory and her place in the world, isn't it? And it, that is also in direct contrast to how Fiona's parents behave. Yes. Yes, he is selfish, but he also expects that Ruby will fall in with whatever he proposes. And that means that he discounts her right to particular feelings. He expects her to behave in a certain way and he denies a lot about her individuality at the same time that he talks a lot about being creating an individual, he's talking really about himself. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. A very limited character in some ways. Yes, although in other ways not. He's, it's very clear from pretty early on that he's not a great dad and it's interesting too that in a sense he fails to meet all the stereotypes. He's not a good provider. 
his parenting style is inconsistent and sometimes there's a scene, particular scene in the novel which is downright dangerous and bad parenting. And he commits an even worse crime in the novel, which I'm not sure we should really talk about because I don't want to give people yeah. any spoilers because yeah. it, it is a major plot point that really wrenches the narrative from life as Ruby knew it to life as it will be for her future. It's that midpoint in the novel. But one of the things I loved about your writing is he wasn't a black and white character either. So tell me how you went about adding the shades of grey to Mitch to make him at best more forgivable, although never really likeable? Well, I have to credit Bert Ivers, my editor at HarperCollins, with a lot of this because I think in the earlier drafts he was pretty unrelentingly unlikable. And I think it was Bert who pointed out to me that he needed more light and shade and agreed with that and I, I could see that he was too unsympathetic a character and it wasn't believable. It didn't feel true in the story that Ruby would be as loyal to him if he was consistently that way. Also, I felt that particularly in the second half of the novel, it's important for Ruby to understand her father, that she has to actually go back and explore the story of life before she was born to be able to form some kind of enduring relationship with Mitch. So that was very important. And in, in her understanding more about him, of course, I had to as well. And that was definitely where the backstory for me came in, fleshing him out a bit more in my own mind as to how he came to be on the road with this child, what his history was, what his past was. Because in some ways he's he's almost like an ageing hippie but with none of the nice soft edges. He's, he dress, certainly dresses like a hippie. He certainly professes a lot of very unconventional philosophies about liberation and being freed from capitalism and all those sorts of things. But he also has a very hard edge. And it was that hard edge that I really had to explore and understand. And in order, obviously, in through me doing, that's part of the story for Ruby as well. And listening to you just talking about that, I think the other thing that's really important at this point in time, and you touched on it just then, you said Ruby needs to explore her story. Because up until this point in time, until they reach Whalers Bay and she starts to get a glimpse of what life could have been like if her mother hadn't died, if they hadn't been nomadic. We also go from Ruby being the passenger in the story, figuratively and literally, to becoming the agent of the story. So she goes from being passive to being a much more active character as well, doesn't she? Yes. And I think one of the key moments really is when she begins to explore Whalers Bay, which is the town where they are living, and she keeps that secret from her father. And it's almost like she's investigating the limits of the world on her own without him controlling. And, of course, that opens up all kinds of possibilities. And, you know, the, I think the challenge with the story for me there was that this is a child and it was... The challenge was to allow her to observe and participate in things more actively without 
actively reflecting on her relationship with her father. But the reader, I hope, is doing that for her in a way. Oh, absolutely. I think that's very true. I also wanted to talk about the journey to publication for you with My Father. As we said, it's your first novel. It was shortlisted for the 2021 HarperCollins Banjo Prize, and I'm sure there'd be plenty of listeners out here who would like to know about that process, about that journey for you. So first of all, what made you to decide to enter the manuscript in the prize and what is it like? I've never been through this myself, so what is it like to Mm. put yourself out there as it were? It's funny, I guess lockdown had a big impact on a lot of writers, but for me it absolutely stopped any non-fiction writing that I could do because a lot of the work I've been doing it involved overseas travel and research. So it really, for me, being in Melbourne and locked down, I thought I'll get my fiction out again. I'll play and I'll explore. So I did a number of online courses. I did a great crime writing one with Jock Sarong. I did one with Forsyth. I did another one with Linda Fennell. So it was fantastic. But I was getting back into fiction writing and I was developing my confidence again and then I thought I'll get out the story that I'd worked on previously, which ended up being My Father the Whale. I looked at it and I decided I'd get a mentor and I got someone who I'd never met who worked with me online for about six months. Can I just stop you just for a second and ask, was that through the Australian Society of Authors Mentor Program or was that a separate? uh, No, it was someone I know was being mentored by Laurie Steed in WA and he referred me to Brooke Dunnell, who is a WA writer. And so Brooke and I worked for about six months together, revising the manuscript I just really wanted feedback and it was fantastic. Working with Brooke was terrific. And at the end of that process, my goal was to put it into the Banjo Prize. So why did you pick that? Because it was for an unpublished manuscript and it was coming up and it was a nice deadline. And I was really conscious of getting the novel ready for publishers to look at. So I've done some pitching classes through the ASA the speed dating with publishers. So I was really getting myself ready to get this novel into shape. And so I submitted it for the Banjo Prize. I was shortlisted. I didn't win, but I was offered a publishing contract, which was just fantastic. So in that journey between submission and getting longlisted, then shortlisted, et cetera, like what happens in that gap? Is it just a long months and months of twiddling your thumbs, hoping, dreaming? Or is there a feedback process for that? There is a lot of waiting. I think I just, I can't remember, but I think I probably just got on with other things because as a writer, you have to be realistic and if you pin yokes on things too much, you can be really disappointed. So I think I distracted myself. I don't know what or how I rated my chances. I know I felt pretty confident with the manuscript at that point, but I also knew it needed more work. I was really looking for feedback, actually, probably. I'd say that much. So I was thrilled to be shortlisted. I was thrilled to be offered a contract. And I was thrilled to be able to work with Bert to and Rachel Cramp, who's the editor at HarperCollins, because the manuscript that was shortlisted for the banjo and the final finished novel, particularly the second half, is substantially different 
and I just think it was a fantastic opportunity to develop it to its full potential. So it was really great. And did you have a backup plan? Oh, I'll submit it for the banjo and then I'll also do this and this or I'll, or I'll find an agent or what, did you have any sort of, had you tried to map out a path for, the, for this book? I already have an, have an agent and I had, have had for over 10 years. But So I guess my path after that would have been maybe to look at the next competition, I think, because the feedback I've had through the writing classes I did was so good that I felt a renewed sense of confidence and I just felt I just needed someone to give me a break and that's exactly the way it worked. Oh, we all know in this industry that luck is a very big part of our success. And I'm also curious, I'm sure our listeners are as well, like when you compare the writing process for fiction and nonfiction, you've touched on the similarities, but what are the differences? What did you find getting a book through to publication as you've done with nonfiction and fiction? What struck you as the real differences in that process or the writing I think writing fiction for me is a much more mysterious process. I feel like the way that you develop a story, the characters that you develop and the shape of a story are all quite mysterious. And the biggest problem I have with fiction is structure, how to structure a story. And particularly in My Father the Whale, we had this big the book is divided into two sections and we have the first section which is told from the nine-year-old Ruby's point of view and then the second half is told from her as a 26-year-old adult. And I found so that process of developing a believable adult character who you recognised in the child as well I found really challenging. Yeah, so I always I feel like writing fiction is a bit magical, really. I feel like and there's not a lot of my logical brain involved, certainly initially anyway, and it's wonderful when you get an editor who is both logical and emotionally involved in your story because they can help you with those larger issues of shaping and um, honing the story, whereas I think with non-fiction, I just feel probably I'm just more aware of what some of the rules are that you can use. That there is, I just feel more confident with it and I feel like I don't want to make it sound the least bit formulaic because I think great non-fiction is great storytelling, but there's, it definitely uses a different part of my brain anyway. And is the editorial process quite different as well between fiction and non-fiction? Yes, I'd say so. I feel like certainly with non-fiction it was more a matter of moving things around and strengthening connections between chapters, for example. With fiction it was more about developing character or, or diving deeper into imagery and bringing that out to make it work in a story without putting a red flag on it saying, look at this image. (laughs) It's important in the story. Yeah. 
Interesting. And are you writing another novel now? Have you, and I'm curious if you are or if you're planning to write one, whether the process of going through with the Banjo Prize to publication has changed your approach to writing fiction? Um, I don't want to say I'm writing something new, but I have been writing something for the last probably 12 months. I'm really in the exploratory stage with a new book and I guess I'm more confident. I feel like if if this book goes in the direction that I really want it to, then it might hopefully be easier to get it published. But who knows? I really I don't have any more thoughts on that one, unfortunately. How long did it take you from ignoring for one second the short story with my father, the whale? How long did it take you from sitting down and locked down to publication then? Was that about three three years? Is that about right? Yeah, I think it would have probably been the middle of 2020 and we're now in the middle of 23. Yeah. So three years, yeah. Yeah. And how does, is that a similar time frame to what would happen if you were writing nonfiction or is that a much shorter time frame or longer? Nonfiction, my feeling is that it would be shorter. Yeah. Yeah. Probably because I felt, feel with my nonfiction that it was much closer to finished when I submitted it. Whereas with My Father the Whale, there really was some hard thinking to do, in particularly for that second half to work, for the adult Ruby story to work and to really build the bridges so that the book feels like a whole. Because ending the first section when she's about 10 and then beginning again 15 years later, that... It, that could be quite jarring for the reader unless you're able to pull through the threads between those two sections of the book. Mm, yeah. Interesting. I'm also curious, like you're about to, you're literally about to go into publicity for this novel and it can be a very exciting or nerve-wracking experience. Have you enjoyed that? Did you enjoy being involved in seeing what your cover design would look like? Have you enjoy, are you enjoying moving from the inward phase, the internal phase of writing and editing to the external phase of spruiking, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> spruiking the book. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, you have to be two different people. Yes. As a writer, I feel. And you need to be the sort of person who can switch off and be able to work, really. It's a very solitary life in lots of ways. And so being pitched into the promotional and publicity side of things, for me, is a real contrast. And But it, I feel like it will get easier. It's just a matter of, especially given if people tell you that they've enjoyed or loved your book, it just makes the process so much easier. It's uh, <laughs> praise has a kind of a lubricating effect. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, place to start from. Yeah. A lot of people are always curious about cover designs. Do you feel that you had a lot of involvement with your cover design or was it presented to you as a fait accompli? What's your experience been with the look and feel of My Father the Whale? It was presented as a fait accompli, but I was quite happy for HarperCollins Australia to have the last word on that because my feeling was I'm not a design expert. I don't know what kinds of things are going to attract a reader's eye and they are expert. They have a whole marketing team. 
they get lots of feedback from booksellers and so I was quite happy with that process yeah and are you looking forward to meeting readers and booksellers and and generally getting out in the world and seeing your book from the other perspective yeah I am actually because I think that's the payoff is connecting with people who've read your book and it's really exciting to be able to do that I think it's great good luck with that because I enjoy it but I know that some people find it nerve-wracking but I actually love to meet readers as well I just want to just go back to the prize just for a little bit was there anything unexpected about being shortlisted for the banjo prize that happened or that you like you or unexpected reaction from yourself about that yes I was bitterly disappointed that I didn't win fair enough and I had to really talk myself through that because I do tend to be someone, I always move the goalposts on myself rather than being able to savour and enjoy the fact that I've been shortlisted. I felt I would have loved the absolute razzle-dazzle of being the winner, which is when you think about it, it's it, anyway, look, it's emotional. It's an emotional reaction and it, I had to really talk myself down from that, actually, because I felt like it was I'd I'd done really well and I wasn't appreciating how well I'd done. The other thing is you you do have to save the wins rather than always looking for the next big thing, and I felt that about myself. So I was a bit surprised by my reaction, to be honest. Everyone else around me was thrilled to bits, but I was feeling disappointed. <laughs> no one maybe... ever remembers the second man on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. But the bigger picture is, of course, that I've got a book out and it's been published and I'm thrilled to bits with it. And it's so much better than the book I submitted for the banjo. So what could be better than that, really? And can I also say for those of listening in, the mere fact that you get to put, not just, of course, in relation to My Father's the Well, because you've won other awards, but just the mere fact that you can put on your resume that you've been shortlisted for a prize is equally as important. If you look at broader literary prizes, the Miles Franklin or the Booker or whatever, getting to the shortlist is the big deal because then it gets down to any of these X number of books, usually around six, is a contender. And I think as a reader, I will read the shortlist. I won't necessarily just read the winner. So I still think it's it's not only an accolade to get that far in the process, but it's also really important to understand from a marketing and sales point of view that those words shortlisted for the banjo prize in your case actually carry a lot of clout with booksellers and the reading public. Oh, and I think it's also important to say that I was shortlisted and offered a contract. Mm. But even I think what you're saying is absolutely true, even if you're not offered a publishing contract, you can be shortlisted and not published for an unpublished manuscript award. Yeah, that's really important. And I'd say that about any competition or prizes is that making it, I know I can say that about other people. It's just for myself I found that hard. <laughs> you're only human. I'm wondering too what advice you'd give to people who are listening in, who are contemplating using a prize as a deadline mechanism or submitting their work in progress for a prize. Like what tips would you give budding novelists for from your own experience? I think I think if you're thinking about submitting for a prize, I know this sounds really obvious, but you need to read the guidelines and make sure that your manuscript meets 
the criteria that have been set down by the prize. And I think then to not put all your eggs in one basket, obviously you want the prize as a deadline and something that you can aim towards, but to try and have something that's giving you pleasure in your own writing that can keep you going while that prize is percolating away. Because I think if you just sit and wait, it's nerve-wracking and it can be so disappointing if you don't get what you want. And yet you can be using that time to be writing something more. Because I do think sometimes that not winning prizes and feeling like that's a knockback can really have a bit of a negative influence on your motivation. And I think the most important thing with writing is to keep going. Yes, and not to, we all get our confidence dented along the way yes. in this career. And I yes. think not to let the setbacks stop you from exploring what you're capable of. Yes. And the other thing I, that you said about all of this that I thought was a really important point is you've actually invested a lot in your skill set, in your craft, with all the courses that you've done, the mentorships, the speed dating, the pitching. I just don't even know how you have the nerve to do that. I, every time I get the ASA newsletter and I go, speed dating, pitch back, it was like, oh, I couldn't think of anything worse. I'm, but perhaps because I'm not very good at an elevator pitch. From all of those different tools that you equipped yourself with, what would be your advice to budding novelists around what you learned from that experience? Oh, I think for me, and I think this applies to anyone writing, is that there's always things to learn. And so doing courses are a fantastic way of connecting with other writers. I've made some terrific writing buddies through writing courses, people who write very different things to me and we share our work back and forth. That's been wonderful. But also that I think for me, particularly the speed dating one, the whole thing, honestly, I think it took me two days to write a synopsis and crafting that and then practising pitching it was actually, even before I got to do the online pitching, that was really good because it forces you to have faith in the story and if you don't, then it highlights where it might be a bit weak. So I found that really useful. If you're finished, if you're at the end of a manuscript and you're ready to start pitching, I found that really useful. And, yeah, I do feel that particularly now and also through COVID, the explosion in courses that are available now online that weren't before, they tended to be much more face-to-face. -face. Now there's much more opportunity to do things and if you're open to what people have got to offer in terms of teaching, it can be fantastic. Mm, really good advice there, particularly about synopsis writing, which everybody hates. I always think of Peter Carey who said it was someone asked him, what his novel was in 100 words. He said, if I knew how to write a novel in 100 words, don't you think I'd do it? <laughs> so it can be hard to blurb, to write your blurb or to write your synopsis, but it is, I agree with you, it's a really critical skill to be able to encapsulate the essence of your story. We're recording this podcast today, the day before your book is released into the world. What good advice are you taking to into this journey of publicity? Have you had some good rallying tips from your writing cohort? Yeah, I caught up with them on the weekend. I'm part of a debut crew, we call ourselves, and we're a group of writers who connect through WhatsApp, but we also go to one another's book launches, those of us 
who are in Melbourne. We're all at different stages. Some of us have already launched. And someone said to me on the weekend, enjoy every moment of it because it passes quite quickly. <laughs> it sure does. So I thought that was fair. Excellent, yeah. excellent advice and also a very good note to end on. First of all, I want to wish you all the best of luck and I hope you have lots of gorgeous readers turning up to tell you how much they love the book as well. And I also just want to say, Gina Perry, thank you for spending time on the Combo Couch. Congratulations on My Father of the Whale. I am biased. I should have done a disclaimer at the beginning because I've already read it and I'm also on the jacket with a quote. So <laughs> clearly I loved your book. It's such a gorgeous read and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today about your, the book and your writing process and to compare the fiction and non-fiction writing world. For our listeners, you can find more out about Gina and her writing at www.gina.com perry.com and she's also on socials at gina underscore perry underscore writer that's on instagram and of course by father of the whale is available wherever you buy your books or from your local libraries because let's not forget the lending side of the universe as well it's been a joy to talk to you this morning and i wish you all the very best with the publicity process thank you Meredith. it's been great to talk to you thanks Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>